Father, we thank you, dear God. You're so wonderfully awesome. We're super excited about what you're uh, showing us and what you're uh, teaching us. We ask that for all the hearers uh, today, that they would have their mind arrested with thoughts of you and your word. Pray that you would open our eyes, God, that we may see all that you'd have us to see. Open our ears, God, that we can hear everything you want us to hear. And God, we ask that through this process, through this teaching, through this series, that we truly obtain financial freedom because we've accepted the truth and received the freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is part two of For the Love of Money. And we're, we have embarked upon a series that will allow us to teach and deal uh, with the truth. Um, I started on last week by giving an overview and also dealing with uh, the one passage of scripture in what we call the New Testament that defines for us Jesus' words on tithing. Of course, as it is very common amongst teachers today to use a technique that we label as proof texting. And that means that they've taken a word or a concept and they went and used a concordance to find that particular word, then they go and look up all the passages of scripture or verses that contain that word, they assemble them together, and then they go, see, it's in the Bible, this is the way it goes. Allow me to say as a, as a teacher, one who's called by God, that that's ludicrous. No one does that and wants to be taken seriously or maintain their integrity. Because the reality is, is that when you teach out of the Word of God, you must do so in the context in which it's presented, so that a real understanding can be had. We have got to come back and do the things that will honor God and set people free. So Matthew 23, so I gave you a few passages of Scripture in their context that was used to establish the audience because make no mistake about it you must understand the audience when reading scripture you have to know who's being spoken to if you take something that the bible presents that is not meant for you and apply it in your own life and when you do not get your expected result your relationship with god is altered it's impacted. You're questioning now, okay, what did I do wrong? And then you end up in this cycle, this downward spiral of believing God for stuff instead of simply believing God. One of the greatest issues that we face today, and one of the things that I pray that this series will help to remediate or on, in some instances uh, mitigate these circumstances from occurring altogether, and that is people come into a relationship because they've been told that God can fix this situation, God can solve this problem, God can give you the desires of your heart. And so the relationship is established on that. And let me tell you, in life, in any circumstance, wherever a relationship begins, in that aspect, it has to be maintained. And so what we want to do is to get people into a love relationship with God so that God's grace, love, and forgiveness is preeminent in that relationship. 
They never fail, they never change. And so you therefore are prevented from ever moving into that cycle that means that you're believing God for stuff. That you're not actually in it for God per se because he's just the vehicle for you to get you what you want. But you're believing God for God. Tommy Tini wrote a, wrote a book wrote a book years ago called God uh, Chasers, and what and what and the premise of the book was simply seeking after God's face. I'm simply after God's face. I'm simply seeking after God. The things that come along with that relationship with God are secondary. They're not my focus. My relationship is not based on the things that God can do for me. It's simply a matter of accepting God's love. And so with that backdrop, you have understanding that the audience that Scripture presents is important to identify. So Matthew 23 and 23, we started there. And I want to take you back there, reread it. I want to give you one more example of being able to identify the audience. So we talked about the story with Jesus and Lazarus. And, you know, who he's talking to. We talked about uh, Peter on the boat with the great fish. We talked about that. Um, so let's, real, real quick, let's take a look at 23.23. And 23.23 says, What are you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you have all to done without leaving the others undone. And of course that's utilized to say, see, Jesus said you should pay tithe. That's fine. And you know, not only do we need to come back and clarify just one more passage of scripture, wrap up, uh, teaching you all how to identify the audience, but we also have to answer that question, when does the New Testament begin? When does the New Testament begin? And I told you that don't open up your Bible, turn to Matthew and go, dude, you're a pastor, you're a preacher, you're a teacher, surely you know it's in Matthew. Because that would be incorrect. It's actually not, it does not begin. The New Testament begins at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes into the earth realm is when the New Testament begins. And we'll look at that. Okay, so the, the next passage of scripture I want you to get to, and let's finish up establishing who the audience is. Turn to Luke, the fifth chapter. Luke, the fifth chapter, verse 12. Luke, the ch fifth chapter, verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one but, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So let's take a look at this. Okay, so here's the scenario. Number one, the person who addressed Jesus had leprosy. Okay, I think that's, we, we're not going to debate that point. And it says that he asked or he told the Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Verse 13, then he put his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing to be cleansed. Who was he talking to? He was talking to the man who had leprosy that had addressed him, identifying the audience. Now, of course, 
And, and this is the part where we talked about even on last week and identifying the audience. Part of that goes to identifying what is specific to those circumstances that Jesus is dealing with at that point and then the principles that we can receive out of something because there are times when Jesus is speaking that he's speaking directly to an individual like we talked about Zacchaeus who was in the tree on last week he told Zacchaeus to come out of the tree okay he wasn't talking to you or I we are not in the tree he was talking to Zacchaeus okay so that's important and then uh, and, and then there are other circumstances like with Peter uh, when he told Peter to go out into uh, the deep and launch a nest down for a catch and we talked about the principle that we that we saw in that passage of scripture where God blessed Peter tremendously first and then Peter repented second so there are things that we have to understand in that regard and that's where the Holy Spirit comes into play. I thank God that on next year, that, that entire year we'll spend teaching about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will identify for you when there is application to your life in a passage of scripture that you're reading. That this is for you. This is the principle that you are to have. Okay, so the leprosy, the conversation then in this passage of scripture is taking place between Jesus and the leper. Now, I want to uh, interweave this with the question about when does the New Testament begin? Because there is something in here that Jesus said that I find interesting. And he told the leper to uh, don't tell anybody about what I just did for you. However, go and show yourself to the priest. Now I need you to turn with me to Leviticus, the 13th chapter. Now Jesus, I'm going to present to you, and I submit to you now that Jesus lived under the law. Jesus had to obey the law. The reason why his sacrifice was so complete is because he lived under the law and yet did not sin. He did for us what we could never have done ourselves. Okay, so Leviticus the 13th chapter and go to, let's go to verse 9. Leviticus 13, chapter verse 9. Let's take a look there. Uh, it says, When the leprous sore is on a person, then he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall examine him. And, in, and indeed, if the swelling on the skin is white, and it is turned to hair white, and there is a spot of raw flesh in the swelling, it is an old leprosy on the skin of his body, the priest shall announce him unclean, and, and shall not isolate him, for he is unclean. Uh, now, so what would happen in those days, and the reason why Jesus said go and show the priest is because under the law, the Mosaic law, he said, for as Moses commanded, when someone had leprosy and was cleansed of the leprosy, they had to go to the priest. The priest was responsible for examining that person and then identifying whether that person was cleansed or not. Hold your place there and turn, just turn over real quick to the 14th chapter of Leviticus. And from verses 1 through 9, I'm not going to read them. Verses 1 through 9 reveals the law of the leper. Okay, so, number one, if Jesus was not living under the law, he wouldn't have told the leper after he cleansed him to go show yourself to the priest as the law of Moses commanded. If Jesus was not living under the law, there'd be no need to reference the law. 
Now, the priest, and I also want to make this point, the priest, because we'll see this come up again, the priest that Jesus is referring to here, in the book of Leviticus you see, that is referenced, and what he's dealing with and what we read in Luke, that particular priest is not the priest that we think of today. Right? It is not someone who's attended, attended seminary. It is not necessarily a theologian. Uh, it is someone who was born of the line of Aaron. If you were going to be a priest in the temple, somehow, some way, in your genealogy, you needed to have Aaron in your lineage. You couldn't just be a Levite. You had to be a Levite with Aaron in your line. So they were born into it. You couldn't work really hard and work your way up to be a Levitical priest. Right? And I know that today we say that, oh, well, you know, I'm a priest here, and, and, and I'm a priest in my home. And yes, listen, that's a different kind of priest than what's being referred to here. And we just can't take the concepts here and then change it and make it fit our day and time. You don't have the liberty to do that. We, we can't. We have to take it for what it is. Okay. All right. So, again, identifying this audience here. So we, we see that the leper is the audience. Jesus heals him. He's told to go back to the priest. And he is inspected by that priest. Okay. Now, let's go back to the 23rd chapter of Matthew. Because the one piece that... Again, people point to when it, when it comes to saying, well, Jesus said that you should tithe, and they turn to Matthew 23 and 23. We're going to do something a little bit different. I want you to turn to Matthew 23, but we're going to start at verse 1. Right? Because context is important and audience is important. I think we've established that. I've given four examples of how you can identify who the audience is that is so very important in establishing the truth. Okay, so now let me give you just a little bit of background. What you're going to see here is that we're going to deal with the seven woes that Jesus pronounces. And he is dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 1, it said, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Okay, so the people that he's identified that he's talking about here are the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, listen, they have, the, they're sitting in Moses' seat, so they're teaching you the law. Whenever you see the reference to Moses, Encompassed in that reference is the Mosaic Law. And I've told you that when you want to readily identify the Mosaic Law, think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments do not make up the entirety of the law, but they are representative of the law. There are, you know, 613 and 627, 600 plus laws uh, that make up the Mosaic Law. Okay, he says, but... I want you to listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. Okay, 
here we go. Verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves would not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. So let me explain what this looks like to you. Okay, so the phylacteries, these, um, these tassels that they would, they would have to hang down, uh, and you know, the longer that they were, the more significant that they were, or at least wanted to appear and present themselves. You also have to understand that people have taken this particular look, this garment look, and brought it in today's time. So you'll see pastors or bishops or preachers or whatever have on these robes with these tassels, and, and what they're wearing is exactly what's just been described here. And, and it has a quote-unquote particular look and a present. And Jesus just, just got you to tell you, it says people are wearing that and doing they're enlarging their borders and they're wearing these phylacteries to be seen by men. I didn't say it. So if you're listening out there on the web and you get offended, I do not apologize. I didn't say it. Verse 6, they love the best places at feast, the best seats in the synagogues, Greetings in the marketplace. Oh, heaven forbid you walk by someone who has a title and, 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 and didn't speak or somehow or another forgot to speak. Mm, mm, mm. I say a prayer for you right now that you may be maintained. And to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, but you do not be called Rabbi for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. We're all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is great among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Who is Jesus talking to? The scribes and the Pharisees. We're getting context here. Bear with me. Be patient with me. We're going somewhere with this, but we have to identify who the audience is, and we have to do it within the confines of the context. He says, verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you set up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, Blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. And let me just stop. Are you serious? you got to be kidding me. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying. And he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's pronouncing woes on them. Now, woe is not a common language or common word that we use today. We use W-H-O-A like to hold up like you do a horse and buggy 
right? And then we've taken that into, or assimilated that into modern day vernacular to mean something that kind of like stop and it kind of brings your attention. But woe in, in, in this particular context, and we're talking about, you know, we've talked about different type of context, historical context here, W-O-E, woe means essentially, you know, uh, judgment, death, condemnation, all those things are upon you. Beware. Right? Okay. Moving back up. Uh, and whoever swears by the altar, it, it, is, it is nothing but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. So Jesus said, listen, you, you tell people don't swear by the temple, you swear by the gold in the temple, and don't swear by the altar, you swear by the gift on the altar. This is what he's saying that the scribes and Pharisees do. Verse 21, he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him, capital H, who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Now listen to this verse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Okay, now look up. So, Matthew 23 and 23 is the verse people point to when they say Jesus is teaching Christians today to tithe. Really? Really? Context changes everything. Number one, who's the audience? Scribes and Pharisees. Number two, he spends the entire chapter, and I'm not done. I can go back and go on and go through, but he's not even done. He's admonishing them. He's rebuking them. He, he's, he's telling them, woe to you. You are a hypocrite for what you're doing. So in the context of that entire conversation, how can we take out of it that he's teaching us to tithe? Come on. We have to be truthful, and we have to accept the truth. Okay, so he is saying that also you're dealing with uh, justice, mercy, and faith, which are weightier matters of the law. So again, Jesus, not only did we read in the previous section where he tells the leper, to, the one who's clean from leprosy, to go back to the priest and to be clean, to be uh, inspected by the priest, because in Leviticus, under the, the Mosaic law, that's what you had to do. And Jesus was not a lawbreaker. If Jesus would have cleansed that leper and then told that leper, peace out. Jesus would have violated the law. Because the law said that the leper had to go back and be inspected by the priest. Here Jesus says, you neglected the weight of the law, again, dealing with the law. Now, there are two pieces here I want to share with you because it's important. And I don't want to have an entire part of the series dedicated to the law because we've dealt with it, I think, well enough. Uh, again, for those who are listening uh, via the web, uh, there's a series... They're on the website entitled, You Have to Read the Fine Print. 
I think really goes into depth about the law. But please understand there are two particular pivot points I want you to understand. And one of those is understanding where the New Testament begins. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospel. Synoptic meaning similar. Because they similarly present the story of Jesus Christ and what he did. Okay, so you get into John, and John also presents again the story of Jesus and what he did. However, all of what Jesus operated in was according to the law. Please understand again, everything Jesus did was according to the law. He said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Thereby he had to abide by the law. So Pentecost then, when he tells in Acts the first chapter and verse 8, when he tells the disciple to wait until the Holy Spirit comes, and when he comes he'll give them power, and then they can be witnesses to what he's done. At that point, that's a pivot point for earth history. Because the earth changed at that point. Now, the new dispensation began there. Um, I taught out of Ezekiel, uh, the 36th chapter, uh, about how God was desiring to put his spirit in the Israelites. And he didn't, you know, that was always his goal. His goal was always to get his spirit in them. David kind of understood this. David said, I want you to write your commandments on my heart. But the concept was always to get God inside of you. That's always been the concept. So it, it was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Now the second pivot point is, is an introduction by Jesus in what was to come. The Pentecost was foretold in many capacities, and Peter preached that sermon in Acts the second chapter, but you'll also see that when Jesus dealt with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, that particular passage of scripture that we're, that, that we're able to read in and see, you can see literally God beginning to pivot for the entire earth based on this incident. Watch what happens. Woman's caught in the act of adultery, brought before Jesus. Jesus uh, is asked or is told, according to the law, she has to be stoned. Jesus was not a lawbreaker. He did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So he says, okay, stone her. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Right? Okay, so, of course, and you, you know, I mean, it's been preached a million times. You know, they drop the stones, oldest to the youngest, they all walk away. So now here's where the story gets interesting. The story gets interesting because prior to this particular passage of scripture, and again, Jesus is operating under the law. Prior to this point, the concept of grace as the abiding dispensation has not been given. Only instances. Now remember, the, the original relationship with the Israelites, with God, was established through Abram. 
Abraham was called a friend of God. He believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness sake. So the establishment of the relationship, and we're going to deal with Abram's tithe. I mean, that's a really big deal because, you know, we got some real sharp folks that say, well, uh, you know, the tithe was established 400 years before the law. Really? And we'll get to that. Okay? Uh, so but the relationship that the children of Israel had with God was established in faith, not the law. And so now the woman and Jesus are standing together. And Jesus asked her a very important question. Where are your accusers? Look, watch, watch, watch. She committed sin, was correctly brought to trial for her sin. Jesus intervened without her asking. saved her life and then stands there with her and said now where are your accusers allow me to submit to you that what Jesus did for us by intervening on our behalf on the cross left no one around to accuse us you cannot be accused any longer the woman says, there are none. And he says, neither do I. For none of them could accuse her, but they wanted to. Jesus could have accused her, but did not. This introduced grace. For what did she do? to deserve it. Was she not caught in sin? The wages of sin are and she she should have died, correct? But Jesus saved her. And so at that point, the law was upheld or fulfilled. Watch. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. What did the law say do? Stoner. Stoner, go ahead. Was the law fulfilled? Yes. Was she saved by the law or condemned by it? Condemned. Who is she saved by? Jesus. So that is the, the, the picture of grace under the law was brought in and pivoted by Jesus. That's a great passage of scripture for that. And so you have to understand that when Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 23, his, the point of his teaching, the focus of his teaching is what they were doing wrong under the law. So now you have to ask yourself, after reading up to the 23rd verse, and we didn't even go beyond it because there's more, did you see Jesus at any point say that Christians today, believers today, Christ followers today have to tithe? bow your heads. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, for showing us the truth, showing us who you are, for saving us. We thank you for your grace, your love, and your forgiveness, Father. We thank you that we are your children and that your love for us 
superabounds. Your grace for us superabounds any faults and failures and foul-ups that we may have. God, we thank you that we accept the truth and that we have received the freedom that you've given each of us to your glory. Now, God, we pray that you would give us opportunities continually to share with others about your grace, about your love, and about your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.